0: Welcome to I'm Not In An Abusive Relationship with your host, Claudia Pauls.
1: Thank you for joining us once again for I'm Not In An Abusive Relationship. During this um, very interesting and sad time of COVID-19, we are recording today from uh, different places via Zoom, Um, so things may sound a little bit different today, but um all of our our uh, information and topics are as relevant as always and maybe even more so in in situations that families are dealing with now so um this morning or today we have uh deborah hackworth and elizabeth alderson with us and we're going to start our conversation talking about separation abuse and i'm not sure um which of you is going to start but i'm going to start with what is separation abuse
2: in domestic violence let's just go over by talking about what domestic violence is it's always good to revisit that domestic violence is a pattern of controlling um, behaviors that one person uses against another in an intimate partner relationship and so it can be physical sexual financial um, emotional and psychological and Um, When we talk about intimate partners, that could be someone that you're currently dating, um, broken up with, married to, it doesn't have to be that you're still in a relationship with this person. And so a lot of times when someone decides to leave a relationship, you would think that would end the domestic violence, Mm -hmm. but a lot of times it doesn't because the abuser feels like that that person belongs to them and they have the right to still control that person's life. And so you see a lot of post-separation abuse. There were, um, there are times when the abuser, um, have told that victim, you can't have a life without me. And so, um, and so they still, um, use that time, um, even after separation or breakup, to stalk the person, um, control them. If they have children, especially, we see this a lot with um, people who have children in common, when they go to do parenting time exchange, using that time to also um, continue the abuse to their um, ex-partner.
1: Well, and and as you've already stated, power and control is most often the root of the abuse to start with. So not wanting to give up that power or control. Right. And maybe even feeling that if things begin to go badly post-separation, it's still got to be the partner's fault taking out that, that on their previous or their former partner.
2: Yes. Um- Again, you're right. It's always about power and control, wanting to have power and control over the other person. And so how dare you say that I can no longer have power over you when you belong to me? And so that um, changes um, the safety of the person who thought by ending the relationship that they're now saved and that's Going to end. Um,
1: That would be a huge hurdle. Um, So if you finally overcome the hurdle of being able to leave and to separate from your abuser and then to still have all of this inflicted on you, that would be another huge hurdle. So I'm, what kind of advice do you have for people who are dealing with this post-separation abuse?
2: Well, um, information education is key. Um, one thing we let survivors know is, um, unfortunately, when they decide to end an abusive relationship, that is the most dangerous time in the relationship. An abuser will ramp up their abuse to um, try and maintain that power and control. A lot of women have been killed when they did exactly what society says they should do. Why didn't they just leave? Well, that's exactly what they were attempting to do when their abuser decided to ramp up the abuse and to end their lives. And so safety planning. um, Tell someone about the abuse. uh, Create uh, code words and things with your family and friends so that Um, they know what's going on or that you can reach out to help for help without necessarily the abuser knowing what's going on. Liz, um, what are some um, things that you've come across or have been able to help survivors with?
3: I think the big one, like you said, um, Deb, is that safety planning with other people, making sure that other people do know, and they have that support of the people around them because it's when other people are joining them in looking out for what's happening around them and stuff that they have more than just their eyes looking for their safety, but they have other people as well because I know something that I've dealt with a lot with a lot of my clients is after that post separation, the abuser will keep the courts involved In that separation process and then that's what keeps that abuse happening is the legal system and it's not the legal systems fault at all but it's the abuser using their power and control and those tactics you know if there are children involved it's you know it's using the system about the kids where do they go what do they do Um, when can they stay at my house you know she you know he or she was late to their visit, or they didn't give the kids or um, child support because, especially when kids are involved, the survivor never really leaves that relationship because those kids mm-hmm. are always present. And so it's it's that you know, like Deb said, it's it's at the visit exchanges, you know, it's at the exchange points. And so a lot of times we encourage survivors, and so does the court system, to have somebody else be present at the children's exchanges. And we've seen that across America where police stations, you know, help with the parenting exchanges and they have cameras set up for parenting exchanges. Um, And so they can kind of be there, you know, a lot of police stations will let the survivor and the kids come into the station, the survivor goes into a different room and then the other person comes in and picks up the kids so that those two, um, so that basically mom and dad don't have contact with each other and that's helpful for the survivor in this instance, because a lot of survivors that I've worked with, that's when things are set, you know, I can't physically do anything anymore, you know, but sometimes those cameras that are at places or when I have another person maybe in my car with me so that you can't, you know, or you're less likely maybe to attack me physically, but you're still gonna say words to me. You know, I've had clients, when they had littles in like car seats and stuff. And so they're picking up the car seat and handing the car seat over. you know. So they have to get out of the car. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then they'll, you know, they'll brush hands with each other as they're switching over the car seat, you know, and it's Mm -hmm. it's like, I'm still here, you know, I love you. Mm -hmm. And of course it's not love, but it's that like reminder of like, I can physically touch you and do this again in the days. And so it's those things, bringing another person with you, being in a safe location for those things, and really keeping track of all those microaggressions that kind of happen, because those do build up into something bigger. And it's being Mm -hmm. aware of all that stuff.
1: Right, because he might say, oh, well, you know, of course, a hand brush, I was taking the car seat, it didn't mean anything. But that implication he knows or she however it's going knows that that's you're aware of what's going on
3: Mm -hmm. Mm mm-hmm and it's huge and and that's the unfortunate part is a lot of times you know that it's during those children exchanges and you know it's that's the difficult part and so um, part of that safety planning who can go with you where are you going is it a lit place? So maybe you don't have the option to go to a police station to do the exchanges? Well, are you going somewhere that has good lighting? You know, are you doing it during the day? You know, here in mm-hmm. Michigan we have, you know, daylight savings. And so if you always meet at six o'clock at night, well, for half the year, six o'clock at night is a perfectly lit time of day. And so you don't worry about it. But for half the year, six o'clock at night is dark. And so are you know, is your safety you know does, does that risk go up if that same location that you've been meeting at for several months is now dark and it, mm-hmm. it, you just didn't realize it before so it, it's really big where are you seeing that person you know if you have to because of you know different things being involved um the other hard part about you know having children is then that you know they have a right to know often where those children are so where you live when those children are with sure. you, that other parent has the right to know where you live. Sure. And yeah.
2: even if um, the victim has a personal protection order against the, their assailant, unless the assailant has um, directly abused the children, there's hardly any judges who will say that the assailant cannot see their children. Mm-hmm. And so, a lot of times, we recommend that the um, that the survivor then find a mediator, someone who may be able to, um, a grandmother, an aunt, a good friend that they have in common, you know, drop the kids off to this person, so then that person can take them on to their other parent, rather than meeting face-to-face. Also, um, family court decides to the um, degree in which each parent can see the children. And a lot of times, there are courts who get it right, and they do an excellent job in, looking at the abuse, but a lot of time the courts will say, but this other parent still has the right to see their children. You still have to supply this time, even if abuse has gone on. And so um, custody orders and parenting time arrangements um, um, are not decided by the parties, but by the court, by a third party. And a lot of times that works, but a lot of times it's really bad. We have, um, we've worked with one particular family probably for the past five or six years where it's constantly something. And it's not that um, he's continuing to physically abuse her, but in every parenting exchange, there's a level of abuse uh, just um words actions um using the children as pawns feeding mm-hmm. them information about the other parent that disparages one parent in the children's eyes um, not returning the children when they're supposed to um parental kidnapping i mean just taking the children, and then um, what, you know, um, and so, which um, continues not only the trauma for the survivor, but also for their children.
1: Because frequently, that motivation would not be because I want the children, but because I want to hurt the other parent.
2: Exactly, exactly, and we hear a lot, well, this person isn't a good partner but they're an excellent parent and my response to that is excellent parents do not abuse their children's um, other parent and so I um, yeah I take exception to that someone can be an excellent parent and abuse the other it doesn't work that way
3: I would not think so when we see that you know when we talk about power and control of that person because an abuser who wants power and control in this one intimate partner relationship, like of course they want power and control in all other intimate partner relationships that they have and in all other relationships. You know, it's not just that one person. It's, it's, it's the abuser. And if it's the abuser, if it's the way I think, then it's the way that I want to have power and control in all my relationships. And that includes the kids. We see that um, the separation in there as well this about like economic abuse and the financial piece of, okay, so whoever has, you know, primary care of the kids involved, you know, so it's not paying child support on time or regularly, or it's the continuing to take you to court over things, because that's bills that, that on, on the survivor's end that pile up, that's court fees, and different things like that, you know, even if there aren't children involved, it's you know making the divorce process longer, which means more court fines and fees and lawyer fees if they haven't been able to get legal aid or um, a, a a lawyer to do it maybe pro bono. Um, there's also the piece of if there's anything owned together that both people have, right property. Um, multiple homes, or just even one home, um, cars, all that kind of thing. If you're going through a separation, even if you're not married, but your both names are on those things, you know, that all of that can happen after the survivor has left. And if the survivor has fled, you know, and is using a program like DASIS or another shelter anywhere, they might be several counties or maybe even in a different state but that they then have to return to that place where the abuser is filing those legal things. So then there's transportation fees and all that kind of stuff. And so people can lose, you know, their entire financial, you know, support if they had any, maybe even to begin with, they might have just ran and left with nothing on their backs, but they might then owe that place of origin thousands of dollars and the abuser doesn't care. You know, they don't care about the money they're spending because they're thinking of the victim and how much money they're getting the victim to spend. It's not about the money that they spend. It's always about the money that the other person is spending.
1: Wow. But still, we would recommend to, to begin with a plan, your goal being to separate and to, to be in a safe place and move forward from there.
2: Yeah. Well, we would recommend whatever the um, the survivor feels is best for them because we r- recognize that they're the experts on their life. So um, even though we may think that separation is the best thing, um, sometimes the consequences of separation is worse or even the same as staying together. So that makes it hard for them to choose. If the consequence to staying is further abuse from their partner or their children being abused, but the consequence for leaving is further abuse from their partner and their children being abused, how do you choose?
1: Right, especially if economic factors are there as well as other things too. Yeah, right. I
2: read I read a um a quote from a survivor that says, I'd rather deal with the devil that I know mm-hmm. than the one that I don't know. If she's in the home with them, it they feel like they can manage what's going on. And um, I don't want to uh, end this conversation by pointing out 30 to 60% of the time, if there's um, domestic violence between the partners, children are being abused also. Mm -hmm. And so um, sometimes staying with their abuser means that they're able to protect their children um, from their abuser. And I hear actually a lot of male survivors say, um, if I'm not there, then she'll Mm -hmm. take it out on the kids. Mm -hmm. And so I'll stay. I'll take the abuse in order to protect my kids.
1: Right. Right. Very, very true. Those are hard decisions to make.
2: It is, it is. Um, <clears throat> one thing I wanted to uh, point out was a lot of times people will, very well-meaning individuals will suggest that the couples go in, into couples counseling.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: We do not suggest couples counseling for um People who are in a violent relationship for a few different reasons. Number one, couples counseling takes into um, account, well, you did this and you did this, and this is why there's conflict. As but when it's a domestic violence situation, there is one person controlling um, what's going on. It's not equal. Um, It's not equal responsibility or accountability for the abuse that's going on in the relationship. Number two, um, if I was in couples counseling with my abuser, me personally, I wouldn't be as honest um, with the counselor about what's going on because I know what's going to happen when I leave. On the flip side, if I'm too honest with my counselor then i'm going home with this person and i know there'll be repercussions at the end and so what we suggest is if someone needs counseling that they do their counseling separately to deal with their separate issues there's um batterers intervention for um, someone who would be battering there's therapy and counseling for survivors so that they can deal with their um, issues and come to a decision that's right for them
1: and realizing that there are issues um, we still always like to end our our podcasts with messages of hope and healing so maybe discussing a plan um, if someone is listening and considering separating from their abuser what what steps would you want them to consider
2: Well, I would want them to consider the, um, their safety and their children's safety. I would suggest that they give us a call at 800-828-2023. Reach out to us um, via um, private message on Facebook. Um, send us a message off of our website uh, which is d a s a s m i dot org, or reach out to one of the national hotlines and talk to someone. Tell someone. Don't try it alone. Um, help. Get help from someone who can help you explore your options because you do have options, and um, and come up with a safety plan because your safety is key.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. Thank you for listening to I'm Not In An Abusive Relationship. If these stories resonate with you and you need help, please visit our website, D-A-S-A-S-M-I dot org. That's d a s a s m i dot org. Or call our hotline at 800-828-2023. We are here to walk alongside you if you know someone who might benefit from our show, please share it. Social media, email, simply telling someone about it all help us spread the word and help us to combat domestic and sexual violence. We also welcome financial and volunteer support. That information is on our website. Thank you to the staff, volunteers, and board of directors at Domestic and Sexual Abuse Services. This podcast is produced with the help of a committee of dedicated advocates. Thank you to WBET Radio in Sturgis, Michigan for the use of their studio. This has been a podcast about surviving domestic and sexual violence and a production of Domestic and Sexual Abuse Services of Michigan.